Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 176. Had a little bit of a delay here in between episodes. I was away for about two weeks. I've lived in New York my entire life, but I had never seen Niagara Falls. So we took a trip upstate and I got to see that. And honestly, it was really amazing. I don't know why, but I always thought it would be sort of like a tourist trap type of a thing. And maybe it's just because COVID's here now, but there weren't that many people there and there was distancing rules and things like that. And so we got to see it and it was incredible. And it's really, honestly, really fun and uh, breathtaking sight to see when you're down on the boat. So that was really great. But that's kind of the reason why there's a bit of a delay here. Although I have a packed week full of recording. So I'm very excited about that. My episode today is with Frida Moyambo. She is a chef and a food blogger, and she has an amazing food blog called My Burnt Orange. She also has a YouTube page and an Instagram, and so as always, you can go to the show notes and you'll find the links to all of those things. Uh, It also sounds like she's got some really cool things coming up on the horizon, like some books and stuff like that, but she gets into that in this conversation. What I really love about her blog is that she's trying to educate people about pan-African cuisine. And so what does that mean? Well, Africa is a massive continent with a lot of countries in it. It's incredibly diverse. And so pan-African refers to trying to educate people on food from the entire region. And this is something that I'm not too familiar with. I've been to a few African countries, but there's many I haven't been to. So that's what I really love about how she blogs is, first, it's visually really stunning, like lots of bright colors, amazing looking food. But she also incorporates a lot of the history. And that's so interesting to me. And now, you know, while we're all kind of stuck at home, I get to live vicariously through people who are talking about really amazing and interesting and unique places. And that's what she's doing through the story of food. So please go check out all of those things I just mentioned, the YouTube, the Instagram, and you'll find recipes. You know, we're all stuck at home. Try to make something. Or if you have a Senegalese restaurant in your town or a Nigerian or an Ethiopian, try it. There's no better time right now to support people, to support small businesses, to support the food industry, to make sure that these things are still here once the world stabilizes and goes back to normal. And try these things, especially if you haven't had food from any of those places before. Branch out and try it. I'm not quite sure why it's underrepresented because the food I've had in The places that have been in Africa has been incredible. And the food I've had here in the United States, you know, she talks about jollof rice, which we've actually talked about here before on the podcast. We have that here in New York. I'm fortunate. And it's amazing. So branch out and try something. Don't be scared to try something new. It's likely that if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you're not someone that is not going to branch out and try something and support people. So... Maybe you know a lot more than, than I knew coming into this conversation. But this was really a pleasure for me to, to learn 
about Frida's life and to learn more about Pan-African cuisine and to be able to use my platform to, to share her voice for all of you. If you hadn't heard of her, hopefully now you are a fan and you will subscribe to her pages and her, her YouTube and stuff like that. Also in the show notes for this episode, as always, is a link to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. And that's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and there's cool kickbacks like shirts and stickers and some stuff from around the world, some postcards once I'm able to travel again. But for now, check out Frida, check out this conversation, and stay tuned because there's lots more coming in the future. But right now, here's my conversation with Frida. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for doing this. It's uh, it's a real pleasure and an honor to uh, to talk to you today. Thank you, thank you so much. Are you in Lagos right now? Yes, I am in Lagos. Okay, so that's I'm where you, in Lagos, and uh, that's where you live now. That's where I live now. I've been here for four years. Oh dear. Let me disable. That was just a reminder that I have a call. Just put everything on silent. Oh, yeah. No worries. Okay. Yeah. So um, I moved here four years ago and will probably be here another one to two years, maybe. We'll see. Wow. All right. So let me kind of take it from, from the beginning. You were okay. you were born in Botswana. I was. But your um, your parents are from Ghana. That's correct. Okay. So in Botswana, I'm assuming maybe I'm wrong. I'm assuming that's where you learned how to cook. Uh, who taught you how to cook? Oh, who taught me how to cook? I'd say I learned from my mother, um, but I, 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 I cooked a lot with my father when I was really young uh, because my mom had a business that would take her traveling a lot. So when she was gone, and this is when I was only eight, nine, <laughs> eight or nine years old, I'd be cooking pasta and rice. <laughs> that was about it. Um, but I think I only really, really started cooking as an adult, to tell you the truth. Uh, this is when I really started exploring, but I could cook. I could cook from about eight or nine, but nothing elaborate, you know? Boiling pasta, it was a skill. My dad was very proud. <laughs> yeah. So... I was thinking about this because, and we'll get into the idea of uh, Pan-African cuisine, but yeah. your, your parents being from Ghana, and I believe your parents, uh, I think I saw this on your Instagram that they are Ga, Ga, uh, Adangbe, right? Yes, that's correct. So was the food that you were introduced to in early life, was that food from Ghana or was it uh, like more regional to Botswana? The food I was introduced to early in life was 100% 
for the Ghanaian palate made with ingredients that we could find in Botswana. Okay. Now, for, can explain further. Yeah, that would be that would be great. So yeah, you want me to go ahead? Yeah. So what do you mean by that? What ingredients are unique to to Ghana or to to uh, you know northwestern Africa? Okay. Say for instance, uh, I grew up knowing full well and uh, eating things like banku and fufu, and uh, the the banku uh, traditionally. And when it's made in Ghana, that is made with a mixture of corn and cassava dough. Cassava is something we can't, we couldn't really find in Botswana. Fufu as well. Fufu uh, in the Ghanaian sort of context, because many people have this food called fufu, and it means different things to different people in West Africa and other parts of Africa. But fufu was made from plantain or yam. And neither of these, we could not find any of these in Botswana. So what my mom used to do to make banku, for instance, uh, she would ferment the cornmeal herself um, to create what we call ma. Uh, Ma is a very old word. And I'm so glad I, I, I took a Ga language class in my later life because I have a good feel for the word now. You know, I, I have an idea of how it is spelled and my hunch often proves right when I do some research. But uh, ma, that is the fermented corn dough. So in order to make the banku, she would cook that corn and mix in Potato starch, uh, potato starch or potato flour. That was something you could get. That was something you could get in Botswana. And that potato starch would uh, imitate uh, the, the cassava. The cassava is very starchy. I've got kids screaming in the back. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, yes. And then... With fufu, uh, you know, we couldn't get plantains, we couldn't get yams, but she would, the fufu, how my mom made fufu in Botswana was with a combination of, we had this stuff called potato mat. Hmm. So we could make potatoes from... Sorry, we could make uh, potato mash from this powder. It was like, I don't know if you have that in the States, but you can make mashed potato. You could make mashed potato way back then from this powder. Yeah, and I think it was called potato smash at that time. But there was powdered potato. And again, she would mix this with potato starch and bring that together. And that would form a very realistic fufu potato fufu, even though we know that fufu is made from yam or plantain or, you know, cassava, other things. But yes, oh, sorry, cocoa yam, but she would make fufu from potato. So I grew up eating Ghanaian food as a child. I have those memories. Uh, But my mom had to 
remix. She had to improvise. She had to make those familiar foods with uh, the foods that were available in Botswana. Am I am I correct? I mean, there were times where. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. I was going to say that there were times where, you know, every trip to Ghana, we try and bring back some yams, some plantains, but they only last so long, you know, but uh, there was definitely some improvisation there. Did your parents move to Botswana for work? Yes. Am I correct in thinking that, uh, at least from what I've seen, a lot of food in Botswana is sort of like meat-focused? There's a lot of barbecue. I saw that seswa is a popular dish. Yes, I would say meat is a dominant kind of food that you find in Botswana. Um, beef, you know, Botswana is very rich in, in, in terms of cows. They have... I think at some point or possibly now they have more cows than people wow. in Botswana. So things like meat, things like chicken. And when I reflect on the, the sort of traditional Botswana foods that I experienced, a lot of the flavor simply comes from the meat. They, they don't add too many too many spices. Well, back then, things might have changed now, but you could sort of understand why there weren't many spices. It being a landlocked country, it means that, uh, you know, the, the spices could only, and the influence of that spice trade could only travel so far. Sorry, do you hear those notifications? I'm not sure why I keep getting them. No, I don't hear them. It's ah. okay. We, uh, oh, okay, that's good. We've that's dealt good. with all sorts of noises throughout the, <laughs> the couple of years we've done this podcast, oh. so no worries. Um, okay, that's good. So then good. when was the first time that you moved out of Botswana? Because you've been all over the place. Yes, I have. I first left Botswana in... 2001. This is when I, I, I left to go to do university and I moved to Australia, Melbourne. Ah, okay. Were, were you cooking at the time? I wasn't. I didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, okay. I didn't have to. Um, you know, because I, I, I moved, I went for university. Um, you know, we lived in students' accommodation. We were cooked for. But I would say the, the only time I really, really started cooking was after I got married. And then I, I got married fairly young. Uh, I was still in my, my final year of university when I got married. And I started cooking a little bit then. And I remember uh, I, I would only cook things that seemed very familiar to me. And to me, anything familiar was very typical. It had to be onion, garlic, tomato. That's how, you know, intuitively, that's how I would just start any meal, any meal. I mean, I did cook a little when I was home, you know, as a teenager when I was home, but it wasn't... It wasn't cooking out of enjoyment. It was cooking for, it was a chore. It was, 
because we were having rice, so you made stew. You know, it wasn't it wasn't for for occasions. It wasn't for a social setting. It wasn't to have friends over for dinner. It was mm. just cooking. But uh, I think the social aspect came in um, as an adult. And and I think with with my travel, um, my 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 spite my 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 palate was broadened. You know, in the very first time I ever tasted coriander. What do you call coriander in the states? Uh, um. Oh my gosh! I it's in uh, um cilantro. Not arugula. Not a cilantro. 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 <laughs> yes. Yes. The very first time I tasted uh, fresh cilantro was in my 20s when I went to university. And, you know, Melbourne is a very, I don't know, Melbourne struck me as uh, unexpectedly very, um, we had so many students from the Asia Pacific, so many, many Chinese, you know, from Hong Kong or Singapore or Malaysia, you know, that kind of mix. So I got to taste a lot of um, Chinese food or Singaporean food because I remember in our student accommodation, uh, the the cook or the lady who looked after the canteen, she was um, Singaporean Chinese. So we had a lot of congee and... Mm. You know, different, different things. So I was being exposed to flavors I'd never, I didn't even know existed. Coriander was very distinct because I remember tasting it even now. I thought, this is a weird taste, <laughs> but uh, it's grown on me. I mean, I didn't dislike it. I just thought it was, it was distinct, but it's, 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 it's certainly grown on me over the years. So, yeah, but I, I, I would say I only really started cooking for real and maybe loving the act and the art of cooking when we moved to London. Um, yeah. I'm not sure why, but I think, I think in London that kind of took us into a new season in our lives. We were both professionals. We, we would have lots of dinners. We, you know, we would have people over, you know, People our age, people older, we would always sit around the table and discuss African politics. And my husband is from Zimbabwe. And if you've ever met a Zimbabwean, they are highly, highly political people. You know, they, you, you, can't, you can't sit down and chat with a bunch of Zimbabweans without speaking about Mugabe or the state of the economy, <laughs> politics, you, you just can't. It's, I think, a very, something very unique to Zimbabweans. Interesting. So we'd have lots of dinners and conversations around the table discussing politics and, you know, Africa's future. <laughs> so, um, and, and during these times, I remember, I, I don't know how to do I don't know how to do small food. <laughs> and by small food, I mean, you know, all these delicate things. It had to be roast chicken and some seriously, you know, thick stew with lots of tomatoes and lamb in it and jollof and uh, something 
I, I always made sure I had were, uh, were these uh, goat kebabs. And I think that came from my mother because when I uh, dig deep and I take myself way back to the 80s in Botswana, oh my goodness, I had a wonderful childhood. My parents were very social. And um, I remember a lot of gatherings, a lot of parties, and my mom would go to town with all this, you know, mixture of Ghanaian food. And then she has quite a, I don't know, she, she, she has the most impressive um, culinary repertoire of recipes. I, I just don't know where she gets, I, I mean, I was asking her the other day, how did you know how to make all these little things? You know, because a, a dinner party with my mom would involve things like, you know, such as potatoes and hors d'oeuvres and, you know, many, many fine things that I, I, I don't think I have the patience for it. You know, even though I love to cook, you know, take, take even the goat kebabs. Those were something that if we were having a gathering in London, you knew Frida, you knew I was going to bring in these amazing goat kebabs. They took a long time to make. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of patience. They were worth it. Very definitely worth it. But I think all our gatherings were inspired by my mother and how I grew up, you know. Big food. You know, you had to have lots of food on the table, lots of hearty dishes around. I was thinking, I, I know you you were in Thailand and you mentioned Melbourne, you mentioned London. I think globally, probably the most underrepresented place, and, and I mean, Africa is so large, so it's sort of hard to say that Africa is one thing, but I guess... African cuisine would really be the most underrepresented around the world. When in your travels did you first notice this, that there was a lack of representation or a lack of access to, you know, African food and cuisine in the places that you were? Hmm. That's a good question. I... I think as soon as I left uh, Botswana to go to Australia, um, something very interesting happened. Because in Botswana, I don't think I really thought about African food as a thing, you know. And I mean, I understand that growing up, food at home consisted of a lot of... Uh, this is in my teen years now, you know, a lot of convenience dinners, uh, pasta dishes with corned beef and egg stew mixed together and other things. But when I, I, when I went to Melbourne uh, as my first stint out of my home country, I, along with several other people from Africa, began to crave things that we would normally not want to eat or be interested in eating. So things like uh, this cornmeal porridge thing that uh, the Zimbabweans call sadza. You know, some people in Botswana call it sadza as well. It depends on which language. But 
because it was so rare to find it, you know, if you went to church and some of the older people from the African community had something and there was Sadza or Ugali, you went nuts. You went nuts. But even then, even in Melbourne, I, I don't think it mattered too much, you know, because it, 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 you know, at that time it wasn't something that we thought that's missing. You know, we just thought it, it's home food. It's what you eat at home. But I'll tell you, when we moved to the UK, when we moved to London, and shortly before I started my blog, I, 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 I got into food, you know. I really, uh, uh, I began to realize how much I enjoyed cooking food and experimenting with food. But I remember a show that came on TV called The World's Healthiest Diet. Um, it came on, on uh, the channel was called ITV. I can't remember the presenter, but this guy went to as many parts of the world as possible. I can tell you he went to somewhere in the Mediterranean. He went to Japan, went to India. He went some some uh, Britain, uh, and he went to California. You know, um, and you know, I know he didn't go to Australia, but <laughs> um, there there wasn't. You know, he didn't even touch any countries in Africa. You know, not even Egypt came up, and well, you could argue that's part of the Middle East. But I thought, oh my goodness. You know, um, we may not have the world's healthiest foods, but we certainly have a lot of healthy food and we don't seem to be contenders because traditional African food, the food you eat at home, is very well balanced and healthy. It's not party food, you know. It's, it's just down-to-earth, simple food. But I, I didn't... Uh, when I reflect upon that, I, I, um, I, I, I kind of said, well, that's a shame that uh, Africa wasn't considered, but it's not, it's not, it's not their fault. It's, it's our fault because we should be telling people about ourselves. We should be telling people about our food. And from then, I, I, uh, that's where I started actually writing more about African foods. And I think that kind of coincided with uh, with uh, starting my blog. So it's been a journey because uh, for a long time it didn't matter until it did. That's really, really interesting. This might be a weird question. I'm trying to form this in my head. Um, so apologies if it comes off strange, just, just let me know. But you mentioned politics a bit. I'm thinking of a place like Vietnam, where Vietnam was obviously colonized by the French. And so something like the French baguette gets introduced, and now all around the world, everyone knows what a banh mi sandwich is. It, it's integrated into the cuisine. But at the same time, when you're in Vietnam, there 
is great pride like there is all around the world for traditions and a lot of traditions and foods that predate, you know, that sandwich. Um, In in doing some research and just in knowing some history, I know that like I believe Botswana had been colonized by the Dutch as had South Africa. When you're looking at telling the story of African food and really teaching people about traditions and things that are uniquely uh, Ghanaian or uniquely um, Eritrean, right? It could be anywhere. Is there an acceptance of the the culture that also comes? So like in Botswana, is there a, an acceptance of the Dutch aspects of food that have become ingrained into the cuisine or in telling the story, is there more of a focus on traditions and recipes that predate the Dutch? Or is this something that's not even thought about? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And forgive me, but I I have to do this. Otherwise, all my friends from Botswana will really, you know, pounce on me. Uh, Botswana was never colonized. Okay, I'm sorry about that. We, We were a British protectorate. We were a British protectorate. But your question is very interesting, and I have a few things I can uh, reflect from that. And I think, um, well, let me just say, if you asked, if you asked me if Ghana had desserts, I'll tell you right off the top of my head, we don't really do desserts. You know, West Africa don't really do dessert. That's an external thing. I could, I could boldly tell you that. But oddly enough, I will tell you, and I put on my Botswana cap on, I will tell you that Botswana has a dessert and it is trifle. Because almost every Botswana I know knows how to make trifle at home. It's weird. And I think trifle, you know, I think that has come out of British influence. But even now, as I say it, I think it's very strange that I I immediately accept that in Botswana, you have a dessert called trifle, but in Ghana, you don't have desserts. It's it's quite interesting. I mean, people, people eat desserts anyway. And people love cakes everywhere. But I don't know. I, I definitely have that thing. I don't know where it comes from. It could be that I didn't grow up in Ghana and I didn't observe many Ghanaians making any classical dessert type thing. But I, I don't think I'm the only one that has this feeling, you know. Mm. So, so there are some things that have come come through and I think I think there are things that have been widely accepted in many parts of southern Africa that have not necessarily been introduced as a oh why don't you cook uh um, I can't think of a good example, but 
let's say, something from Dutch or, uh, or American or British cuisine, but ingredients have been openly accepted. Uh, so I... Flour, flour has been in, 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 in Africa for a long time. So sometimes you may wonder, you know, a consumption of bread. You know, bread is an important food no matter which country you're in across Africa. So you may wonder, oh, you know, where did this idea of bread come from? But for me, the more I dig, the more I reflect, the more I understand, the more I play with languages. I can only tell you that uh, our bread in Africa, our things that we made with flour and water is, is the porridges. It's these porridges that we always make. It just so happens that when you use wheat, it becomes something different because we, 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 we make these steamed dumplings. We make these steamed dumplings. They, they behave differently because of the absence of gluten and, and other things that will make a, a dough act like modern day bread. But we, we have these things. So, I mean, these are just my thoughts anyway. The more I think about it, the more I think, well, People in Botswana making steamed bread, they might not have been trying to copy dumplings. They might have just been trying to make something that was familiar to them, but because it was flour, it turned out differently. So, I don't know. That, that, <laughs> that, that's a, an interesting question. I, I have many reflections you know, on, on that. Well, yeah, I appreciate the thought that you put into the response. Uh, I, was, I was thinking back to what you said earlier about that program that talked about healthy foods. Whenever I've had someone on here, it, it could be Africa, it could be the Middle East. I'm always talking or they're talking about foods that are like whole foods that are natural and, and from the earth. And that's something where... Yeah. You know, I would imagine Australia is the same. I've had like some Australian snacks in Southeast Asia, uh, but also a lot of like snack food here in the United States is a lot of processed stuff and a lot of junk and a lot of additives and fillers. Um, yeah. But whenever, like when I go through your blog, I don't see any of that. I see all like whole food items. It's really interesting. Yes. I have... I have purposefully, um, I mean, it, 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 it might come into my blog later on, but I have purposefully dedicated myself to highlighting and uncovering the indigenous foods because, you know, if you, if you go to a country like South Africa, you know, that's where you see a lot of Dutch influence. Oh, very, very heavy Dutch influence, and then you know you 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 explore the Cape Malay uh, cuisine. Um, South African food—it's very easy uh, for a person to to get lost in all the external influences, where the actual indigenous foods disappear from 
memory. So I have purposefully um, tried to dig deep and uncover the African foods. But, you know, it's, it's a journey and there are different things you can reflect on. Like, you know, when I say it's not like we ate these whole foods every single day. We, you know, when we, we, we now left childhood and we were in uh, our, our teens, we were definitely eating a lot of convenience food. Mm. Um, whatever the country was manufacturing and processing at the time is a thing. You know, I, I, I remember late 80s and 90s, Foods like poloni, I don't know what the equivalent is in the States, but it's not too different to bologna, but that <laughs> is a thing. Send food poloni. We had a lot of poloni sandwiches, poloni sandwiches with fried chips. We had these sausages. Uh, one of my friends reminded me of these sausages that we call Russians. I don't know what type of sausages <laughs> they are, but everybody knew that they were called Russians. And that was, that was a thing. That was something everybody was eating. And I think it was just a reflection of what was on the market. And yeah, it was just, just, just a reflection of what was on the market. So there is an influence that comes from industry, you know, what people are, what, what, what uh, commerce is trying to push. So, so there's that mix. But I have purposely chosen to to go to the indigenous foods and uncover them because I don't want them to disappear. Um, I don't want us to to forget about them because uh, I think you know when I say us, you know, people like me, our attitudes are different. You know, you. You're speaking to me because I'm promoting this food, but if you speak to another person my age and similar to me, she, she would be saying, oh, I, I really like pasta, you know, I love ravioli, I love gnocchi, but I don't like the texture of fufu, you know? <laughs> people, people will say different things uh, and people have different interactions with, with foods, but I've purposefully chosen to highlight the indigenous foods and sometimes I wonder because it's not only Africans who are interested in you know things like uh, the ancient grains you know millet and sorghum you, you now see so many products emerging lots of bloggers and food writers are writing about that as a new food but it, it's been a food that you know when you were young, we're like, ah, only the, the grandmas and grandpas, those are the ones that eat them. But I think we're all returning to this idea of uh, connecting with our foods in, in, in a different way. But uh, Ghana, I spent one Christmas in Ghana and left six pounds lighter. <laughs> because the food we eat every day is hardly processed. No, it's great. It's healthy, and this was another another uh, thesis that I could add to my to my blog that African foods are actually healthy if you if you if you unpack all the the fluff in if you get down to the 
to to the uh, the foundation of it. They're actually quite healthy and balanced. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We we talked about bread before. Obviously, there's like a yeah. a, a kind of like global push for like a low carb diet for people to be in their optimal shape. But when I have bread all around the world outside of the United States, I don't feel heavy after eating it. I feel I feel normal. I feel light. And if you eat a big bowl of pasta here in the United States, you need to take a nap. And I think it's that uh, <laughs> it's that Monsanto grain. Honestly, it's like that that genetically modified for like higher yields and in, in, in bigger plants in bulkier plants that makes you feel that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think, oh gosh, yeah, when, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can share uh, something I observed when I first moved to Australia. I think when you first leave a familiar place, everything seems strange. I remember the chicken seemed strange. I remember eating chicken going, this, this chicken, the texture was, I think was softer than what I was used to, but I've never, I have not experienced that kind of uh, awakening since then. I remember really, really thinking the chicken was different. But uh, I remember also, I used to react a lot to pasta when I got to Australia. You know, I, I suddenly experienced a lot of bloating, but now this was at, at a time where, you know, I was a uni student, I wasn't really thinking about what was going in, but I do remember what was happening to my body you know, um, my gut. Yeah. But uh, at the time, it didn't, it was, oh, well, I ate too much. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't think much about, uh, much about it at all. But I, I can, I can, I can, I can relate to what you're saying. You, you piqued my interest when you were talking about those big meals that you used to have in London. And I'm wondering, so... Yeah. I have not really been exposed to Ghanaian cuisine. If I was to attend one of these meals, and let's say you were cooking and you wanted to really represent Ghana to me, what do you think is something that you would make for, for a first-timer like myself? Yeah, jollof would be on the table. It's a party food. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's kind of grand. Um, I would... If I wanted to go to town, I would, I would, and if I wanted to show you cooking from home, you would get those goat kebabs. Those are mama's, you know, those are mama's uh, recipes. You'll get goat. I might, I might use lamb, but you would get kebabs. And I think, I think because of the, uh, the widely available spices, now, I would also make you some suya, or in Ghana, we call it uh, chichinga. It's these uh, uh, kebabs as well, but made with a, a unique spice um, that in Ghana, we call it tankora spice. In Nigeria, it's known as yaji spice, but it's, it's for suya, and there's a lot of peanuts in it. So it's, when you grill it, it creates this distinct smell that is poof, it's wonderful it's so wonderful because it reminds me of teaching guys a street food um, so I would make that 
there'd definitely be some. I, I would either make um, a whole roast chicken or, you know, some marinated chicken pieces, you know, with lots of onion. That's something also tied to how I observe my mom cooking. But if, if, if you must, it's, it's not too uh, different to things like pule uh, yasa, this uh, Senegalese kind of chicken with, uh, well, they make a stew, but my, my mom would make a marinade with lots of onions and then grill. So that's what I would do. That's what I would do. So we'd start there. Oh, yes. And then we'd, uh, um, I'd either make a coleslaw, but if I really wanted to go to town, I would make a proper African salad. And when I say African salad, this is the type of salad I grew up knowing. Uh, Lettuce, iceberg lettuce, baked beans, onions, tomatoes, their carrots, maybe... Uh, boiled eggs, lots of mayonnaise. Can you imagine? Wow. A salad with all of that in. That is that <laughs> is a salad. That is how I grew up uh, knowing salad. And would you believe, I haven't attempted to make that salad myself. But if I wanted to, if I wanted to, I would call my mom and say, Mom, how do I make that salad you used to make? That's, that's exactly how I do things. You know, so my mom has a lot of influence in how I still do things today. And there's so much I need to cook through, so much. You know, I would imagine that in, in educating people and in making Pan-African cuisine more known and more popularized around the world, you would hope to get it as close to right or as close to the source as possible. When you're talking about uh, the spices that are integral to these meals, are they exported on a mass scale? Are these available in places like the States and in Australia? Hey, Australia, maybe not so much, but I'll tell you that uh, when it comes to West Africans and some East Africans, people from the Horn of Africa, like Ethiopia, Eritrea, you will find those things that you need because, guys, we we travel. You know, like I said, back in the 80s, mom would, we'd go to Ghana. We wouldn't leave Ghana without our peppers, without our palm oil, without our plantains. And people later on started businesses just based on this, you know. By the time I was in high school in the 90s, I knew that if we called one Ghanaian woman, she regularly brought foods for the purpose of this. So for sure, if you are looking for typical West African spice is uh, scotch bonnet pepper, you would you would find it. Um, in London, you would find it at any Afro-Caribbean store. A lot of the Asian stores uh, cater to the African market. So you, you would find them quite easily. In the States, um, it's been a while since I've been there, but I, I think uh, if you can't find it, and, and for sure, in places like New York, oh, you, you would find it. There's no doubt about that. In places like where's the huge uh, 
There's a huge Ghanaian community in Maryland. So oh. I'm telling you, you would find it. But where you can't find things like scotch bonnet, a very close substitute is the habanero pepper. The same, same family, quite fragrant. It's hot, but it has this amazing fragrance that uh, reminds you of scotch bonnet pepper. It's interesting that you mentioned Ethiopia, because I was going to ask about that. Um, about a week, a week and a half ago, I was upstate. So in the Ithaca and Rochester and Niagara area of New York. And in Ithaca, the one African cuisine that was represented was Ethiopian. And so I think of a place like, I guess the connection I'll make is like, at this point in 2020, Thai food or like the sort of generic equivalent of Thai food is pretty well known in America. Like it's in the collective conscience. People know about it. And when I've traveled around the States, I have seen Ethiopian food represented far more, unless maybe this is just the context of my travels, but I've seen it represented far more than the food from other countries in Africa. I was wondering if you also noticed that or maybe had an idea of why that might be. You are not wrong. You are 100% spot on. In fact, uh, you remind me of a time when I, I, I worked uh, with Groupon to create an article and I had to specifically tell them that, listen, a lot of people will say, think of African food as Ethiopian food, but Ethiopian food is Ethiopian food. But I think anywhere you go in the world, you will find an Ethiopian restaurant. In my time in Australia, there was an Ethiopian restaurant when the Africans wanted to get together, people from Kenya, South Africa, Zimbabwe. We go to the Ethiopian restaurant because that is all we had. And I'll tell you something. I think I have not studied this. This is just uh, me answering based on my intuition. But I think this might be because of... um, you know, the, the Ethiopians have a strong Italian connection with their Italy and their food culture. And I think the thing of eating out and restauranting, it's, it's very strong with the Ethiopians. You know, we don't think, take Botswana, for instance. We, we don't necessarily think our open Botswana restaurant. That's just food we cook at home. But Ethiopians have managed to develop their cuisine in a way that they can present it in a restaurant setting. And I mean, I'm no expert at all on Ethiopian food, but I'm pretty sure there are some people out there who will say, you know, this restaurant food you eat called Ethiopian food is not really what we eat at home. Uh, I'm sure, you know, there might be people who will tell you or they'll say we eat it at home, but that's not really the indigenous, indigenous food. You know, that is, you know, what we did when the Italians came. You know, there, there are some people who might tell you this. Um, I don't know, but you, you are spot on. There are many, many Ethiopian restaurants around the world. Um, as your first introduction to African cuisine. And I think it's because they have a major culture in eating out already, you know, in, in, in the restaurant sense. You know, there's a huge 
eating out culture in West Africa, but it's more of a, a street food kind of eating out. It's not, you know, it's not you're going to uh, um, get a table service at a restaurant. It's I'm working in the market. Let me go to the top bar and eat something real quick and then go back and eat, uh, go back to work. I think that's it. But you're not wrong. I think in terms of all African cuisine, Ethiopian food is the most widely known because there are so many restaurants. Mm. There are so many Ethiopian or Eritrean style restaurants. They are there. It's in their culture. It's in their blood. That's what they do. That's what they know. It's kind of like uh, if you think about Lebanese food, they know how to do restaurants. Mm. There, there are Lebanese. You know, I'm, I'm here in Nigeria. I only got to realize this whilst here. A lot of the restaurants here are run by the Lebanese. And then after being here, going back to London, I realized that actually a lot of the big restaurants are selling Lebanese food or, or, or foods from, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the Levant or, you know, that, that type of food. They, they, that's what they're doing. They know how to do this. It's in their blood. They, they, they have an eating out sort of big food sort of presentation kind of culture. And the Ethiopians certainly have this. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I'll try to keep this to our, uh, our scheduled hour, so I'll keep this to just a couple more questions. But I'm really curious about the time that you spent in Portugal. I believe I read that you were a chef in the Faro region, so I'd love to hear about that. Okay, okay. So the time I spent in Portugal, that was, it was just, it was a holiday. It was a cooking holiday. So I, I, I went to the, what was called at the time, the Portuguese country cookery school. And it was just an experience for myself. It wasn't in any professional capacity but it's just the sort of thing when I travel, I like to learn something about where I go. So now I went to Thailand, I took a cooking class. I went to Portugal, I took a cooking class. So, so that's, that's what we, that's what I did. That's what it was. And it, it was a, honestly, seriously, when they said Portuguese country cookery school, it was in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> somewhere in the, Somewhere in the, I, I don't even know if we were still in the Algarve, but it was it was somewhere. And um, we took a 30-minute drive into the nearest town, the Algezur. Um, I think that was the name of the town. Went to the market, tried to source what we could find. Went back and uh, you know cooked some potato bread that looked like a bit looked like focaccia, but it was potato bread. We were meant to cook sardines, but we couldn't find them, so it was macros. We grilled them. You know, we had some cheese. You know, it was it was it was just a a lovely experience. And oddly enough, this this experience was being offered by a British couple who had lived there for many years. Ah. <laughs> you know, I think they they found a, a gap in the market, and who knows, maybe the Portuguese didn't think, oh, you know, why would anyone want to come and cook our food? But they certainly found a way to, to do that in culture. 
but yeah, that was the experience. That's what I did. Okay, cool. So we've been touching on it a bit, but uh, I'd love to hear about when and how the, the blog came about and sort of like what your mission and purpose for it is. Okay, when the blog came about? Yeah. Okay, so yes, it was all around this time where I saw that program about the world's healthiest diet. Um, not long after that, I had, uh, you know, I mentioned when I went to Ghana over Christmas and came back six pounds lighter and I was eating my way through it. I, 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 so I had, I had through this thing of trying to challenge misconceptions we as African had about our food, as well as those other people had about African food, because I went through this thing of wanting to eat healthier and I did, I lost weight, you know, um, that was my mission and I achieved it, eating African food. So that kind of inspired me to, to take that journey and start sharing uh, foods, uh, sharing about foods from Africa. Uh, where the name came from, remember I mentioned all the dinners we used to have with our friends and the talking politics. The kitchen we had at the time, it was a kitchen diner, it had these bright burnt orange walls. So I, um, when it came to naming my blog, I thought, well, let me just call it uh, Burnt Orange. The domain was already taken, so I decided to call it My Burnt Orange. And that's, that's pretty much how the blog started. Um, and, you know, in, in London, I, I think, honestly, I, I was no longer shy. I remember, you know, we had a few people home for dinner in our Australia days, and I remember being shy about telling them what our foods were called. You know, I thought, well, you know, it's kind of weird, but really it wasn't weird. It wasn't weird, you know. Um, having peanuts with meat is not weird. Most certainly not there, you know. Every Australian knows what satay is, and... If I serve peanut soup, it's, it's not that strange. It really isn't. So what is, um, what is the future of it then? Do you eventually want a cookbook line? Does this hopefully maybe one day become a show and you're representing Africa on YouTube or on Food Network or something like that? Yes, most certainly. So my mission is to celebrate African culture through food because it's worth celebrating. Um, it's giving our future and our children a space where they can come and say, well, I want to connect with my identity somehow. You know, let me find this food. There's certainly plans to do, to do books and you know, I know a lot of my friends would say, ah, Frida, you know, people writing books and publishing. But for me, it's like I can't just get up and write a book about African food by myself. I, I mean, how can I be that arrogant? You know, it has to be a, a, a collaborative and collective work. It has to be written by many people. But what I can do and what I am working on is several memoirs taking you on this journey that I have been. Because like I said, the experience I've had with food, you know, 
from zero to 10 years old was different to that I had, you know, in my teens. And then it changed again. So I'm actually um, working on a proposal. You know, it's taken me this long to find the right angle. And I think I have found it. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be writing several memoirs, but my first one will be, you know, taking you back to 80s in Botswana and telling a story that not many people know, you know, of the intra-African migrant, you know, because Africans travel. People don't know that. Mm. Africans travel to other African countries and they experience the different cultures. And I think, um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be sharing a lot of my memories and wonderful experiences and wonderful childhood from there. And it won't just be African as you know it, because while my mission and my work is heavily centered around sharing indigenous African foods, that's not everything we are. We are so diverse. We have, um, you know, we have mothers who read recipe books because a lot of books that you read right now about Africans and African food written by non-Africans have this huge assumption that African women don't read recipe books. Mm. It's so weird, but they do. They do. And I think it would be nice to, to have more of these. Things. So there's certainly a lot of work coming forward. I do hope, you know, I'll be writing my own memoirs, but I, I do look forward to working with a lot of um, creatives from other parts of Africa collaboratively to continue to highlight this because there's so much work to be done. There's so much that needs understanding and there's so much that we should be doing in our voice rather than someone else's. Well, I will, everyone listening knows that they can just go to the show notes and I'll have a link to your website, to your Instagram, to your YouTube, and that will get people started on their education about Pan-African food and as you were talking about Pan-African culture. Uh, And, you know, I want to say thank you for uh, allowing me to share my platform and for trusting in me to uh, help to be a a speaker for your voice today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Tim. That is a wrap on episode number 176 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Freda for coming on. She's so interesting and so cool and has such a great blog. I really, really recommend if you liked this conversation, go check it out, learn something new and try something new. So many amazing looking recipes and pictures there. I have to get out and explore more of Africa in the future. It is like top, top, top of my list of travel goals coming up. All right, Voyagers, thank you as always for listening. Please take care of each other and I will catch you very, very soon.